This podcast is brought to you by Alpine Fit. Alpine Fit is an award-winning company based out of Anchorage and makes premium base layers, bushwhacking leggings, and more. I have the Treeline Long Sleeve, and it's my go-to because it's warm, breathes, and it doesn't have an odor-reducing treatment that's going to degrade. The odor resistance comes from silver technology that is incorporated in the fabric construction. Owner Jen Lufbro has extensive experience in the industry, so she knows what she's doing, and it shows in the products at Alpine Fit. Go to alpinefit.com and place your order today, and be sure to follow Alpine Fit at alpinefitco on Instagram. This podcast is brought to you by Sagebrush Dry. Some dry bags can survive a trip to Alaska, but Sagebrush Dry Bags are designed to live in Alaska. Sagebrush Dry is a Southeast Alaska company based out of Cake, Alaska, and makes high-end bags that will keep your gear dry in the worst of climates. I've had their day pack for over 15 years, and I use it every time I'm fishing for steelhead in the spring and when my wife and I are out in our skiff. I've added the Cavern and Camera Bag, and I just cannot recommend them enough. Uh, go to sagebrushdry.com and invest in packs that will last. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking with Jack Bow. Jack is the co-founder of the Alaska Wild Project, co-owner of Double Shovel Cider Company in Anchorage, and also Local Greens Alaska. Is that Local Greens Alaska? Is that the name of the of that? Lo- local Greens is the name. Okay, Local Greens. Uh, the we- the website is Local Greens Alaska, and uh, they do hydroponic farming for a sustainable local produce, which is pretty sweet. We'll get into that in a little bit, but you and I were just talking just before uh, I hit record about fishing. And that was the the first thing I wanted to to talk to you about because you are an avid fisherman. And since I was up there a couple of weeks ago for my honeymoon, um, good place to start. One of the big observations I made was just the crowds. So as an avid fisherman and definitely someone who likes to get away from people, how do you handle the, the crowds on the Russian and the Kenai and the Kisilov, where do you just avoid them? Yeah, no, the, it's gotten tough for sure. Um, you know, just the change in volume of fishermen, especially the early season reds on, on the Kenai. So the, the Russian and that confluence, it's, it's kind of got daunting. Um, I mean, you go down, you're taking say, you take your raft down that upper Kenai section and it's just, you know, combat for the whole bend around guardrail hole and, then just rafts stacked up on all the other beaches and islands. And, you know, it definitely, it definitely pushes me away from, from that experience for, for me, I think what, what I do on the Russian that I still enjoy is I really like spot fishing. So if I am fishing reds, I usually wait until it's, you know, six, six a day, 12 in possession limit. And, uh, and then I get in down there real early in the morning. Um, you know, you get a good night's sleep. Uh, most people seem to like fish, fish late at night. And then um, what happens, and it's really unfortunate, is that the crowds block off the Russian River. So during the day, the fish that are in the Russian that are already in the Russian, say at like seven or eight in the morning when this when the river gets blocked off on by people, um, those are those are the fish that are going to remain in the river that are fishable for the rest of the day, and they're all running up towards like the falls. Um, and so you got like this little window, but if you get down there at first light, uh, and you're good at spot fishing, those fish have an opportunity where the river's not blocked anymore and they start hauling their butt up there. And, uh, that's the time for me that I really like to, 
to, you know, spend on the Russian and then get out of there quick. You know, the campground's nice, like it's family friendly. So I have my kids down there and have fun, but uh, the crowds really, really pushed me away from, from wanting to spend more time down. Now the late run has gotten better. We, we were kind of, we kind of hit this on our other podcast a little bit, but the, the late run Kenai always used to be the harvest run. So that you'd just compete everywhere on the river for a spot. Well, since dip inning started, it's made that middle stretch, like really nice for fly fishing. So um, for, for reds. And then once you get your limit, get, you know, start fishing for some trout. And so I'll take my drift boat in that middle section and actually have like a peaceful day. Hmm. Nice. That was one of the things that I noticed about the Russian. It just didn't seem like anybody was fishing it how I would, because the program is a little bit different, but there were people just standing right in the middle. I thought, well, that's the nice deep slot. Like that's where the fish are going to be traveling up and you're standing right in the way there. So you can do like the little, flossing the four foot cast to 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 do the little it looks like some sort of fishing tai chi move um but i thought i mean even actually (laughs) moving up and if you have a you know a couple miles of that like is anything getting by any of those people yeah yeah it's funny because you you, you'll get in those banks and you kind of have to do a little coaching you're like hey if you come stand back right next to shore they're gonna they're gonna swim right where you're standing or even like a little bit closer on those inside bends they don't want to be in the super fast water yeah Uh, they kind of want to be right on that edge of current and if you can coach them suddenly suddenly you know everyone's catching fish if not you'll just kind of be the one standing back and watch fish swim behind people's legs. And they don't even, they don't even realize it. Sometimes it's, it's pretty hilarious. There's a steelhead spot near Ketchikan. That's kind of like that. It's the most you know widely used area. And it's a pretty small spot where a uh, river dumps into a lake and the fish will kind of nose up on to the, to the flat. And then, you know, you, that's when you can kind of get them. If you push them back down to the lake, they're going to be gone. And so you kind of like work down to where you want to fish so you know it's that first cast from shore just make sure because there's a there's a nice little slot right next to shore but you have people who will just get right into the water and then walk out 10 15 feet they'll get waist deep but you know they were fish holding it at shin level or, or knee level you know that's where they were and you just pushed them all out by splashing in there but i don't yep. know what it is it's not really a helpful exercise but sometimes it's impossible to think about do you ever wonder about what the good old days were like? I know up there, you know, it had to be you know, 30 or so years ago before there were tons of people, but there have always been a lot of people who've been attracted to those, those areas with a lot of fish. Do you ever think about what it was like 30, yeah. 40, 50 years ago? So to me, like the good old days would have been on the Russian would have been fishing the rainbows. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the pictures that some of these guys that are in their fifties have from when they were kids fishing it with their dad and coming out with their dads or moms or coming out with, uh, with stringers, the rainbows were as big as the reds and they're keeping the rainbows. And I think that that would have been the time that, that the good old times that I would be daydreaming about is being able to hook into the, you know, 28 inch rainbows, frequently um on the russia river it's just unfortunate that you know they didn't all go back in the river and then there's a lot of you know accidental catch stuff happening still with the rainbows there but yeah that would have been really cool I i feel like the the if you hit it right um we were down there two years ago when they increased i think they 
it was over a hundred thousand fish came in the Russian, which was huge. I think it was 180 and, um, it was nine per day, nine in possession, wow. unheard of, un, or 18 in possession, unheard of. Oh my um, and but my dad and I would go down in the morning and I have a really fun picture on my Instagram of, of a morning with four of us down there and just like this massive stringer that year. I didn't have to dip net. Uh, we caught all of our fish, um, down there and, uh, enough for my family for the, the winter. And so I, I feel like they've done a really good job in managing the fish, uh, th- that the numbers are good. It just has to do with the blocking off the river. I yeah. think if they would somehow like maybe put something in the river that's like, you can't fish past this point into the river. You know, you can fish the whole bank. Just don't, you can't walk out this far, allow some fish to travel through. Then people could spread out more on the river and, uh, and it would be a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah. I I really hate to have regulations. I hate being told that I can't fish this area or this area or this stretch or certain days and closures, things like that, you know, because as a resident, I feel, you know, somewhat entitled but at the same time, if I take that entitled attitude, it's unsustainable because yeah. it's going to be open for everybody at all times. And there's not going to be anything left, which is one of the reasons why, you know, things aren't the way that they used to be. But so you got to have. Yeah. yeah. With the more pressure that, that some of these regulations will help future generations and sustainability. You know, it's, I think it's really important. I mean, you see it on like these wild and scenic rivers where, you know, they make you uh, bring in the sacks to take out, you know, your waste, uh, all your waste. Um, and I think it's important to do that and follow those regs to, you know, conserve our areas. Uh, it's a bummer we have to do it. Yeah. But, yeah. So being up there on the road system, you can find some secluded areas if you want. Obviously, you're not going to say names, but are there, there are some areas that you can pick up some fish if you don't want to deal with the crowds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think reds are a little harder, you know, the, um, just the type of habitat red salmon need. Um, you know, it's, it's a rare opportunity. And, and then since they're, they don't hit, um, you know, you either got to floss them or basically have to floss them, um, or get real lucky. Um, I, everyone's kind of aware of all the red spots that are on the road, the road system. Um, but for the other um, species of salmon and trout, um, you can definitely find secret little honey holes and streams that people drive by every day or don't realize, oh, I can you know, walk this railroad track to here. Um, now, a lot of those kind of secret spots that we had as kids, I'll go out there now and yeah. there's definitely other people that have found them. Yeah. Um, I, f- I feel like I can get away from people more trout fishing than anything else, but... And, and silvers too. Silvers is pretty easy to find. Silvers live in about every stream, and you, they hit. You so you don't need a you don't need a lot of them. Yeah. Um, you can I can usually find some really good spots for them. So it's widely known slash reported that uh, that sockeye or reds don't hit flies, don't hit lures. Uh, would you say that that's more fact or myth? So for the streams that I fish for reds, I'm not having the luck, um, any, any strikes. Um, but you, you know, you see these other guys, like, especially that, um, the outlet of, of ski lack, some of these guides have kind of figured a way to either annoy the fish Mm. or, 
entice it to strike in a way. And, and they're doing that. You can see those drift boats. Um, I have not done that. Um, it's, it looks pretty cool. So for me, I would say that it's more of a fact or pragmatic observation. Yeah, I would definitely agree that it is a fact, but it's not one of those absolute facts. I was fishing uh, one of my home rivers and I just had, you know, just going for trout and I had just, it was just a Prince nymph that had a yeah. hot spot behind the bead and it was just a red hot spot. And I picked up on more than one occasion um sockeye had had hit that it's not like you know three or four in a day but it's you know a certain time of year if you use this there's a chance that one might hit and that was that was kind of cool but yeah i would definitely say that it's it's definitely more of a fact but it's not impossible so if you speak in absolutes um actually here's a question for you do you think it's more likely to catch a king salmon on the kasilov with a fly like traditional swinging flies not flossing or to catch a sockeye with a fly. Including flossing? Not including flossing. So you're straight, no. you're straight up fly fishing. It's going to hit. You have mm. much bigger water, so many more people. Are you more likely to get a king on the Kasilov or get um, a sockeye to hit anywhere? Yeah, I'd say that if we're getting rid of the accidental and flossing, that the king, the kings will hit way before that. Um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time fly fishing for kings, and they definitely are aggressive. They'll come after the fly. Um, yeah, I would uh, put my money on the king. I, I hope that was the case, and I spent some hours on the Kasilov, and man, it just didn't seem... I don't know if the fish were just getting by, but I, you know, you have to figure out depths and stuff and it was difficult to tell how deep it was. And so was I getting down to the fish fast enough? Um, you know, and it was, it was kind of tough. And then you had 30 people not too far below me that were flossing and then same thing above me. So I found some water that I could kind of fish how I wanted to. Um, but at yeah, the spot there wasn't fish, but yeah, it was pretty, I don't know if it was frustrating so much as it was just an exercise and, utility but i always find that found that fishing for kings it's they're mostly in holding areas you know Uh, they're they're not moving a lot unless it's early in the morning or late at night you know and in that period you can start seeing them in some spots that aren't exactly holding holes but the rest of the time they seem to be taking breaks um they take they seem to take their time up streams if you see it like on the volcano where how, how far, how long it takes them to get up versus some of the other salmon species um, up to their spawning grounds. Um, but you get into these big holding holes that you know they're not spawning in. Um, they, and it's during the day um, or it's bright weather, they're, they're kind of staying put. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I think like, as you learn the, learn new streams, it's like, okay, well, what, what's the structure, you know, what's the, what's the current like, you know, is it, you especially on the Kasilov being that turquoisey color it's kind of harder to tell what's going on beneath surface um you know trying to find those places that they're holding all day yeah yeah that's the, the difficult thing anytime you go into new water you can just feel helpless because you're not you can't see it you don't know it yet and if there's limited access you know it just feel so helpless right uh, yeah yeah the, i always like the suggestion i got from someone uh, i don't know about 15 years ago it's like if you fish new waters 
just take the opportunity and do a half day with a guide, learn how to fish the river, ask all the questions to your skill level. And then the next, you know, the afternoon or the next day, now you go fish it right, you know, and you're not wasting any time and you've learned so much stuff. You bet, you know, you bonded with a new person, hopefully, um, I mean, their shared passion, right. Guide and, and uh, a fellow fisherman. Um, I, and I, I just kind of took that from to heart. And a great example is I grew up fishing the upper Kenai for rainbows and dollies and you know you kind of only know what you know and so i went into that going yeah there's better fishermen than me but i know a lot and then i spent uh, a bunch of trips with uh jason from 40 49 degrees uh 45 degree outfitters and uh man he taught me so much stuff it, it was kind of like going to engineering school you learned like what you didn't how much you really didn't know and it was like a whole new river to me um so even like even an experienced fisherman in that area has something to gain from it. Yeah, that was kind of the plan. We were looking at guides, and we we contacted a guide and said uh, we're looking at you know king salmon fishing on the Kasilov, and he said, well, you know the the Kenai should be really good for rainbows. And I thought, well, uh -huh. we, we want to go king fishing on the Kasilov, and he kind of steered us toward 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 rainbows on the on the kenai we thought well okay i mean that's still that's one of the huge things you want to catch a big kenai rainbow so we said no yeah. so do that and we figured for the exact same reason let's you learn some sort of insight you know you're going to pick up on stuff that the that the guide tells you but also the things that they don't even know to tell you but you just kind of observe and you think oh dude that's a huge thing right here i wouldn't have even known to ask that but you picked it up so what I discovered what, or what Abby and I discovered that it was probably because the Kasilov was like, no one was fly fishing it. Zero people from boats were fly fishing it. It was all the yeah. trolling. Um, you couldn't use motors. And so we thought, Oh, that's, that's probably why either he maybe didn't feel like rowing or didn't want to have two people who wanted to fly fish on his boat. Cause he get laughed off the river um, or, you know, whatever it was, but I thought that's definitely not the program. So it was awesome to, to catch some really nice rainbows on the Kenai, but then trying to replicate that there's so little access on the Kenai. We couldn't oh, yeah. those spots. And I thought, oh man, that was so much fun, but I don't, I don't know how we replicate that. We can't get to where we went and we can't even like, it's, it's no good. Yeah. That middle and uh, lower section, you really need a boat. Um, I mean, you really need the boat for the whole river, but especially those sections. Yeah. yeah. I think that kind of contributed to my helplessness when I, on the Kasilov cause it was the second day and then the third day. And, you know, I hadn't learned anything from day one that I could use for day two. And it just seemed like not a lot of people were catching Kings and I was fly fishing for them and, and not even a lot of people in the drift boats seemed to be picking up Kings. So if, if you're doing it back trolling four people in a boat and not catching anything, how am I going to get one with a fly? But yeah, no, it was still, it was still pretty sweet. So what is your favorite method of, uh, of, of fishing? Uh, I, I prefer, uh, fly fishing, um, with one exception, there's, there's some of these dri big drift holes. I like to run a bait caster through for Kings with like, uh, like a Vibrax and I kind of let it just barely hum off the bottom. Um, I really enjoy that. Um, but other than that, it's, it's mostly all fly fishing. Um, and what species, uh, a mix I growing up, we used to do a lot of fly fish for Kings. Um, now a lot of these runs have been decimated. Um, a lot of the fisheries that, um, I used to fish were went to, um, 
catcher and lease only around 2002, 2000. And then we're completely shut down until this year. And uh, some of those fisheries are back open to catch and release. Um, but these small, these small water systems that, you know, you kind of got to get off the grid a little bit to get there. Um, take a little bit more effort. I, I really enjoyed them. Um, King, King rivers that you fish in the evening and you can walk them. So um, moving down from hole to hole and watching the Kings run up through the shallows. And it just, there's, there's something about that that really uh, excites me. Um, and it's nostalgic, you know, when I get to do it again, because that's, that was what we were kind of dedicated to as kids. And then as we got, as I got older, I got more and more into uh, rainbow fishing mm-hmm. and size doesn't matter to me. Uh, I'd, I'd rather go not see anyone on a small Creek than catch a monster on the green right. eye. Um, yeah. it's just all about like, you know, being there, working the water, um, being in nature, kind of bonding with the, that energy, um, man, it, I, there's something for that. And then, you know, trying to fit, fish outside the bead season, you know, so understanding, okay, what, what are the nutrients in the water? What, what's happening? What, what bugs are out, you know, kicking over rocks and, you know, try, trying to figure out that outside of the easy run beads only season um is what i i really enjoy the most so especially when you get to get into streamers and the different ways you can work streamers um it's just uh it's really exciting yeah sometimes when when i talk about you know fly fishing and you know, just not being around people and dry fly fishing for rainbows and cutthroats and whatever that's so much fun people kind of see that as oh you're too good for spin casting or you're too good for flossing whatever that's no it's just a preferred method you know, it has nothing to do with, you know, I'm not you know, looking down at, at those the terminal fisheries where you can snag or flossing or anything like that. It's just back trolling. Just my preferred method is this, and that's just what I like to do. And like you said, when you're you fly fishing alone and you have that rainbow that's just rising, to, it's just, oh, man, it, you can't. Yeah. No, oh, so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the, uh, one of my favorite things to do is run uh, uh, dry flies on the Russian. I feel like a lot of people don't do it. Um, I mean, Prince Nymph, you can't go wrong with that there on the Russian. But running dry flies is pretty fun. And it was something where, like, you grew up here, you know, you're mostly fishing streamers and um, not a lot of dry flies. And then, um, on, on, at least for tr- trout on these bigger, like, salmon rivers. And, um, and then one day when you wake up to, well, I can fish dry flies here. It just changed, changed the game. Cause then you get like one of those, just, I don't know, more, it's just a different style of fishing. And, uh, and you get to add that to your armoire and experience something new and watching them rise is wonderful. Um, and then you doing it somewhere new. is great. Yeah. It's amazing. Once you, once you do get that one little success thing and how much more you can dial in and focus. Um, we're having our fish in the wind river two days ago now. And there, it was super cloudy, but then the sun came out for a little bit and you could just see the river and you could see like where a little slot was. Yeah. This other little slot. I'm like, okay, I get, I'm going to aim for this slot. And like the second cast, I got the right cast in there, hooked up with a nice fish and then it ran down a little bit, landed it. And so from that point, I was like, I have to hit that slot. You make the yeah. cast. Didn't go into the slots. Like, okay, no, if I, that didn't, that was like a non-cast. I wasn't fishing there. I feel good every time I hit that slot, but 
if you don't know where that slot is, or if you can't see it, you think that everything is helpless rather than, uh, I missed it. I'll get it next time. Cause I know where it has to be. Those little, little bits of confidence, but just makes a, such a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Fishing those river, those new rivers that you, that you haven't experienced yet, or like a river that changes a lot of like grade or bottom structure or for, you know, forest land conditions in, in, if you're on like a float trip, you know, you have to learn how to fish each of those sections as you go. And it's so much fun. Um, once you have that initial, you know, oh, they're on the inside bend to, you know, intercept these small or, you know, why wouldn't they be in the seam there? And then, you know, but up in the, the more chill water, slower water, they're hiding in these seams. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. That's where you would ambush them there. And it, it's just great figuring it out. So uh, you've mentioned drifting a couple times. What type of raft do you have? Do you have raft or do you have boat? Yeah, so I have a drift boat and I have a raft. Um, you kind of like the what is it's like the Alaska thing. You got to have a drift boat. You got to have a raft. You got to have a paddleboard. You got to have a jet boat. You got to have a Kenai motorboat. You got to have your ocean boat. <laughs> Just too much stuff. Um, so the, the I have three. You know, I have paddleboard, and but then I have a drift boat, a raft, and an ocean boat. So. Um, you know, the, for, I have found that unless I'm streamer fishing, the drift boat performs better, but there's a lot of rivers that that drift boat either can't get to, or, you know, it's just the wrong tool for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, I have a, uh, D series, um, raft. Um, so it's a 16 footer. Um, and then, it, but it has the width of a 14 footer. So it's really navigable. Um, and, uh, can make it through some really tight rivers. And then I have an 18 foot also narrower. Um, it's narrow, like a 16 footer, um, like a hybrid, um, Willie drift boat. Nice. Yeah. So both of them seem to, so the rafts in air, air D series, super solid raft, um, good Alaska design, um, where, you know, you got the two tubes, so, um, it, it can take a beating. For recreational use, do you use mostly the raft? And like, how many rivers per boat is it? Like, if I really want to fish, it's drift boat on these two main rivers. Whereas the raft, you can go to a whole bunch more. How does it kind of break down? Because you have access, like we said, with the road system to so many more rivers. So, which one do you find yourself using the most? If I'm doing a day trip, I'll try to take the drift boat. If I'm doing a bigger trip than that, I try to take the raft. Um, and, the, and that's also also the style. Like, I, I like to keep it light in the drift boat and fish slow, you know, um, where like the raft, you can't really control the speed. Mm. So you're, you're more, it's a, you're, you're either using streamers and using the speed of the raft to help your streamer or you're stopping to fish where the drift boat you can mostly fish the whole time uh, a lot of the day trips that i used to do in my drift boat have kind of been taken away because of um, they were king salmon drift boat trips and those rivers are now close to king salmon mm-hmm. um so the drift boat mostly just hits like the casilof and kenai now um uh, like the, the streams up north that i used to take the drift boat to um at least for kings are closed and so I like to I, I like to fish the kings out of the drift boat, but on those rivers um, for trout, it's a I like to walk. So the raft's fine. I just pull mm-hmm. aside and walk the river. Do you ever hunt from the raft? Uh, I haven't. Uh, uh-uh. 
no you do a lot um, of hunting too you well you t- it seems that you tend to go up and you do the uh the alpine stuff and the extreme stuff but uh no no uh raft for a moose or anything um so we have a moose camp that has kind of been um a tradition since uh night like 92 so and i'm i'm the young guy at moose camp so i can't bail um and not that i would want to anyway um so so the, i think if i did do a float hunt it um it would be a moose float we we float hunted when i was younger but as a as a, an adult as a man i i uh, haven't done any i've set up two and they're both brooks range caribou and uh maybe sheep but mostly caribou hunts and both times we got weathered out um so we weren't able to go um one time a blizzard came in late late august and then uh, the other time the water was too low to get to to actually float the river that we wanted to float and it was a bummer because that river was a um wild and scenic river that is one of the best arctic char rivers and we had timed it for the arctic char run so we were going to be able to shoot caribou harvest caribou for the family and um catch and release um arctic char fish um and hopefully we do that someday again i think after that was right before we started double shell that, that kind of just doesn't fit into the the schedule uh I, yeah i also like to sheep hunt a lot and i'd like to do a sheep hunt someday where i get flown in um going with a cub and then get a ram and then like float out with a pack raft i just think that yeah that just seems cool <laughs> yeah even if i didn't have to it would be really fun to like kind of complete it that way um so someday i hope to do that uh, the place I'm going to go hunt this year might be an opportunity, but I've never walked the creek that is running out of it. And I'm pretty cautious. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I definitely would want to like at least have talked to someone that's floated out or walk it myself before I attempted a pack raft. Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy that you have like the people to, to down South people can look at you and say, Oh my gosh, you're such a hardcore Alaskan. But compared to, there's always another level. There's always oh, more levels. There is. And it's just, that's why I, I called the podcast. Yeah. And the, the solo hunters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I'm right there with the mediocre. I mean, yeah, there's some of these guys that are solo bow hunting sheep hunters um, and then uh, are taking, you know, going out with the, the, the pack raft, like sight unseen river. Um, you know, it basically un, un, uh, undocumented, you, you know, you can't find anything about, uh, or, you know, what kind of, I'm definitely not that guy. Yeah. Um, That's the cool thing about a lot of that stuff. A lot of people just live a life and they're unencumbered by having any sort of social media following or trying to make any sort of content. And it's like, that guy's so totally legit because they're not doing this because they get sponsored. They're doing this because it's like legit. they love it yeah 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 they uh yeah they got they alaska made them you know they it breaks you and then makes you uh if you do it right i think yeah so you mentioned double shovel so that's a good segue over um that was one of the things that i don't necessarily like about ciders and some of the seltzers is that it's super super sweet 
So when Abby and I stopped by and got the tour, and that was awesome. Thanks a lot, by the way. Um, the thing I yeah, like super about fun. your ciders is that they are like you have the full gamut. You have a drier, and then you have up to a, uh, a one that's a little bit more sweet. So, um, kind of, how did you get into the the cidering, and then how did you figure out um, what flavors you wanted and and all that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a little shout out to Jerry Lau, who's my brother, and then uh, Galen Jones, who's our other partner. I mean, it, it was uh, definitely a, a group effort. It's uh, all three of ours. Uh, you know, we're really uh, in this together. Um, you know, we we were brewing beer and uh, distilling, just home distilling, uh, and making a little bit of wine kind of inflammation type issues, um, illnesses in the family, autoimmune stuff. And the more that we started to adjust, adjust like the greater family's diet to an anti-inflammatory diet, the healthier everyone, um, became. And, um, we realized that that was the path we wanted to be on as a greater family. So that was, uh, at the point we decided to, um, start tinkering around with cider because we had read a bunch about, um, how clean you can make it. Um, this colonial style dry cider, we basically get all the sugars out. Um, and then we also had some other Alaska, uh, brethren that had started a cidery down in Washington about the same time. So we had some inspiration from them. Um, and so we, we just started making it at home and reading, finding this lost art of colonial, um, style ciders. And, uh, and they were good. Um, you know, they're real dry. Um, and at the time I worked on the slope and so did my brother and we'd go to the slope and come back and our cider stash would just be pillaged by friends and family. You know, it's like, well, shoot, if people are going out of their way to come over and tell us it's this good and, you know, snagging our stash, it must be this good. So we kind of just like made, took a risk and, uh, and started this, this company, (laughs) it was kind of just a side project for, for the start. But, um, you know, the, the community here really bought in, um, and supported us. And so, um, we kind of just had to go full, full, uh, full on full throttle from the start, um, because of that support. So, which was super cool. Yeah. I was, when you were talking about, like walking a river before you raft it. I was thinking back to when you were giving the tour and you were talking about how you bought like one of your first tanks was a massive tank. So you were already preparing for growth. That way you didn't have to buy a smaller tank, try to sell it and then buy the new one to upgrade. Like you went full tilt in it, uh, which was, which was pretty, pretty crazy. Was that, um, does that make you nervous at all to, and if you can maybe explain that tank thing that I tried to just explain there. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, I mean, I think anyone that's starting a business or like taking on something new, um, you kind of like have to put yourself in like a humbled position and reach out to people that have been in your shoes before. So, uh, we, we reached out to a bunch of different breweries and cideries around the United States. And a lot of the owners or head brewers, cider masters, um, were willing to talk to us just authentically very open about like some of their successes uh what worked for them one of my favorite questions is like you know 
what would you what would you do um if you did it again and what would you change you know something real open-ended like that and this the feedback you got was just great but one of the major themes and and some of the local folks here had local breweries had similar um things to say was um you know design bigger than you're going to need so you don't have to rebuy all your equipment um and so so that's what we did there we we uh learned how to age wine um, so ciders of wine. And so we, we were confident that, Hey, if we had bigger tanks, um, it's okay if we just age it, um, just, just in case like the demands higher than we anticipate, um, uh, we have the capacity to, you know, meet, meet the, the local demand, um, and don't have to go buy new tanks. So we, we bought a system that was what, 32 times bigger than we thought <laughs> we would need. And then after the first month, um, we, we had to buy another tank. <laughs> so, uh, but we had that designed out ahead of time and thought, thought through that. Um, so, so, so it, w- it was already in the, in the docket. Hey, this is our contingency. If, if we are too small, you know, if we do need to uh, up our pr- production, our capacity, how can we do that? And it was with this one tank, we would be able to do it. And uh, yeah, so that was really cool. Um, going that big and so what's cool is that those tanks are the right size for our operation and so we just had to buy more of them yeah um so so we never had to replace them and um those two those two big tanks that we're looking at those are still part of our arsenal um they're fermenting right now nice another thing about the whole process there wasn't just like the engineering of business but it's also you're taking your engineering background to um, recaptured carbon and use carbon. So can you talk a little bit about the technology that you are, are using for that to make it more sustainable? Yeah, I think that um, part of being in Alaska and it, you know, going out and getting to use this awesome um, land uh, is taking care of it. And so I think uh, we, t- we, we bring that same vision onto like how we operate our company. It's like, we want double shovel to add value to the earth, not take away. And so we, to do that as a, a company that's, you know, making something and, um, you know, uh, we, 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 sustainability is the key. Um, so we looked at our process and we're venting, um, 10 times more CO2 than we need, um, through the fermentation process. It's a byproduct, And so, um, and that's great CO2. And, um, so luckily, um, we, a few other places had built their own systems. We know, um, Alaska brewery had built theirs, I believe in the two thousands, but it was their own kind of custom thing that they had to have engineered. And it wasn't something that a small, um, cidery like us had, uh, opportunity to go do. Um, but a few years ago, um, this company called earthly labs had bought, had purchased some um, patents for um, CO2 recovery, and they repurposed it for uh, capturing CO2 from brewing or or making cider, fermenting cider, and so um, well, any fermentation really. And so um, we we went and invested in that. Um, it was a pretty big investment, but we thought it was the right thing to do. Um, and so the goal is to basically recapture all the CO2 that we, we generate and then use it in, um, our product and then also, um, use it to grow for local growing operations. So, um, we're going to be using it pretty soon in our, our, uh, farms here on site. Um, and then there's some other farmers that we've contacted, 
um, that are really interested in using it. And hopefully some other breweries want to use our CO2 too. Um, that way, you know, they're not buying a bottle that of CO2 that was packaged in Seattle mm-hmm. made from a byproduct of, of hydrocarbons, yeah. even though it's food grade and then sent on a ship, you know, and then finally get, you know, there's just a big carbon footprint there. And so for us, I think we can help make this, um, the local community a little bit more sustainable by us capturing the CO2. So we have it up and running right now. Um, there's, it's definitely newer technology and we're learning how to work with it. We have captured some of our CO2 and, um, are right now engineering some plans to, um, make it more efficient. That's awesome. It's, it seems like there's, there's a little bit of a push or like a a different mindset. And so those are just good ideas. They're not seen as like, Oh, you know, tree hugger, whatever sort of ideas. These are like really good ideas that make a lot of sense that we can do rather than, you know, just, Oh, go, you know, whatever, I'm going to have my diesel truck and let's go shoot caribou with oil. You know, like these are just good ideas and it's cool that, that, that they're able to be done. And especially in places like, like Alaska, where you'd think that, well, you know, you can't do that stuff up here because it's Alaska. And so we got to just, you know, make do with our, our traditional power. Right. Yep. You're right on. Um, I think that's an important mindset for our generation to really grab onto this whole sustainability thing. And it's like, how am I impacting the earth and how can I leave it better than I, you know, than when I got here. Um, and for us, like we, we're lucky, we, you know, we're in the opportunity that we have the opportunity here at Double Struggle that we can do that. Our customer base likes that, that idea and totally bought into it. The, the other, um, my co-founders are a hundred percent on board with that mental picture. And, um, yeah, so we're going to continue to do that. Then that's like what we did with the farms, like the, these farms, we, we brought these farms on, um, to provide sustainable produce year round in a lot in Anchorage. And it's something that we're lacking and that we really think the community needs. And we're going to be the guinea pigs, um, you know, learning how to do this, learning how to do it cost effectively, learning, learning how to get it into people's homes. I'm not interested in getting it into restaurants as much. I mean, if restaurants want it, they can have it. But the number one goal is to have an opportunity Give, the, give every family an affordable opportunity to have fresh greens, you know, lettuce, you know, um, kale, bok choy, whatever they want, um, arugula, mustard greens in their homes for dinner um, or lunch. Um, and it's, I think that that's the way the future is, is try to like th- th- solve these problems as a community. Um, so we're going to do our part. Hopefully it leads to sets a good example for other people to or inspires them is better yeah inspires them to do their what they can do you know and then suddenly we're in a better place than we were five years ago yeah it's uh, as alaskans we can't look at these things and we can't just gloss over like we've seen what happens to, to salmon populations you know so we have to wonder and be curious about um, fishing practices about spawning habitat about all that stuff you just have to same thing with you know wildlife so in up here like you can see it'll it's a lot more close you know it's not like just some distant thing that you read about online you see it so much more and, and it's, it's easier to be more than one thing like you can be a moose hunter who likes to hike 
and bike and also cares about sustainable food. Yeah. Right? You don't have to be like, I think some people, and I think we've seen it with, uh, with like media coverage that it looks sometimes like the entire lower 48 is either Trump or Biden. You know, it was like, well, what does yeah. this person do? Like you reduce someone to one thing, which is one of the nice yeah. things about Alaska is you can be so many different things and you can see how that fits in with other people and you can have a much stronger community because, well, we can disagree politically, but we have six or seven other things that we'll do together before we even get to that point. Like That's we're right. hunting first, we're fishermen. We can go kayaking. We can do all these things first. And if we want to talk about politics, we can, but you know, we don't have to. Yep. Yeah. It's not black or white for sure. There's this gray and yeah. uh, a lot of other colors that are great. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, of biking, I did buy a bike today. Pretty excited. Nice. About it. Yeah. Uh, What'd you get? Uh, I got a giant. Okay. Uh, and uh, I had a, you know, somewhat of a limited budget because I've been out, you know, looking at, at, you know, saving up for a house and things like that. Um, but uh, what is the biking scene like up in Anchorage? I know mean, you guys got a lot of trails and stuff, but um, well, what, talk to me a little bit about biking up there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you kind you kind of have, uh, I'd say like four different, maybe five different like little sex. So there's the, the winter biking is amazing. Now, um, these apps like, uh, for uh, trail forks where it, it actually, they, they have, you can pull up snow bike trails and then you can see real time on your phone where you're at in the trail systems. Um, they're like dictated by level of difficulty. But also, like if a new trail comes and you're track and you're being tracked on the trail forks, you set it up so you, you enable the tracking. Um, then a, a couple of people hit that, that will pop up as like a new trail, mm. um, which is super super rad. So there, there's just tons of the snow biking, the fat tire biking that's really um, blown up in the last uh, I don't know five years, ten years. People have been doing it for sure, but last five years is really blown up, and I've really gotten into that. Love it. And then, um, and then you have a lot of like single track around, um, a lot of that was put into place by the single track enthusiasts, advocates, single track advocates. Anyway, it's a nonprofit group here and, um, they've done a killer job putting, you know, getting the permitting, doing these trails, right. Um, building them. So they, they don't, um, there's not a negative effect to the local environment because they're in place. Um, and, and they've put a, just a, bunch of these trails in on the hillside in north bicentennial over in kincaid and so and then the level of you have um some that you know you need full suspension bikes and there's other ones that you can ride your fat tire bike in the summer on um like a hard tail no no uh, front shocks um so you got that style and then there's a lot of cool kind of uh bigger i guess like treks you know, where you, you have these passes. So you have resurrection pass um, from Cooper landing down to hope, super rad ride Johnson pass. Um, um, I've ridden lost Lake before. Uh, I don't think people really think of that as a bike ride. Um, and then, and then you have a bunch of these other kind of hiking trails that you can ride on to uh, like the trail up to Russian lakes there's just, there's just like endless opportunity for mountain biking. Then they have the, uh, the downhill stuff. So Elieska now has downhill park in the summertime and Hilltop here in Anchorage is just putting theirs in. So 
I don't know if it'll open this summer or next, but they're right working on it right now to, uh, to have, um, you know, downhill biking available at Hilltop Ski Resort, which is like right in the middle of Anchors. It's super rad, um, great opportunity for kids. And then there's all these like kid programs that are super cool, um, like Mighty Bikes over in Kincaid, uh, where, you know, instead of your kid like playing soccer, you know, if they don't like soccer, they can go sign up to be in Mighty Bikes and they bike with like bike coaches in, a, in their little team, you know, twice a week or I think it's twice a week. And then uh, there's a mega road biking community. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you go down at Bert, the real popular trail, Bird to Gird. It goes to the old highway, um, the old highway to Girdwood on um, the Turnigan Arm. That That's a super cool ride. You ride over into Girdwood, you can go hit the bake shop or go get a beer at Girdwood Brewing or go hike. If you're hardcore, you could go hike the North Face and then jump on your bike, ride back. And uh, Bird Creek has a really nice campground or you could go hike Bird Ridge the next day. So just a lot of cool stuff like that. It really, the bike scene is really um been popularized over the last like 15 or 20 years it's mm-hmm. and there's so many bike shops so many knowledgeable people what i noticed primarily when i walked in just started looking at the bikes because i have my high school bike it was an old trek 800 i think and then the bike that i bought you know right after graduated college that i took to work sometimes and just the t- that was an old gt just the technology and how things have changed so much how much lighter they are and i thought oh my gosh this is going to be so much better on the logging roads we don't really have a lot of tracks or trails down in Ketchikan. It's mostly just kind of get out on a logging road somewhere, but that's pretty fun. Um, but the, yeah. Yeah, the technology has changed so much too. And so it was, it was pretty sweet and with the global everything shortage. I was like, this is an XL bike. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to buy it because uh, who knows when I could get uh, something else. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, so what, is your new one a uh, full suspension or a hardtail is 29 or what'd you get? Uh, it's a hardtail 29. Okay, sweet. So the GT I had was a full suspension, and I don't know, just for the type of riding I did, I didn't feel like I, I really needed that. I know you can you can make adjustments on those now, so where it, it feels a lot more, but you don't you know, lock them out. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, but um, it's it's pretty nice. We're gonna actually go out in a little bit here. Um. There's some trails back. I'm in Laramie for another couple of weeks. Uh, a couple trails behind town. We're going to go uh, bomb around a little bit. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Get some pedal time. That'll be awesome. So those like logging roads in Ketchikan can, has anyone built um, single track from like the, from those like interconnecting with the logging road or did you no. see that a lot of Washington where they like, they use the old logging roads as your entry up. And then you'll you'll have all these dip in points off the logging roads, and then they interconnect back to logging roads. So you can do different loops, and it made it easy because half you know half your trails already installed with the logging road being there. Yeah, I haven't. I know some people ride. There's some people who ride. Uh, uh, you'll see them on the on the street or the the road bikes, and then some other people kind of mountain biking around. There's an extensive network of trails. It doesn't say that there's no biking, like they'd be really good bike trails, but you know, the bikes might degrade the trail quite a bit, but, and then also could just be an unwritten rule that you don't take a a bike on some of those hiking trails. Um, So it's kind of hard to gauge exactly how many people do mountain bike or would want to get involved and do that. So I might, when I get back to town, might kind of test that out a little bit and see, I don't want to, you know, step on toes of the hikers and cause a big problem. 
Um, but yeah, there, I think there is just a ton of opportunities with those old, those old trails before they get, or even as they start to get grown in with the alders and you just have a nice little shoot. So, um, yeah, that'd be pretty fun to, to check that out, but, um, yeah. So, well, uh, you got anything else, man? I appreciate the, you taking the time this, uh, this afternoon. Any, uh, any closers or thoughts or anything we missed? No, I think I think we nailed it. It'd be uh, next time you come up, we should definitely get that get you out on the either the drift, the drift boat or the raft. That would be a good day on the river. I'd like to fish, uh, spend a day fishing with you. It'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. I've I've done a few floats. Um, went down part of the Stikine a couple of years ago on my Watermaster. Uh, those things are cool because they're so small and maneuverable, yet pretty solid and nice. I've you know it's the lower part of the Stikine, so there wasn't a whole lot of of really fast water, but bad things, uh, things pretty fun. But uh, yeah, nice. floats, floats are, floats are great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for hitting me up. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Where can, uh, people find you and double shovel and, um, all your stuff. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, so the farms are local greens, Alaska. Um, that's the Instagram, um, and the website. And the farms are located at Double Shovel Cider Company here in Anchorage. Um, and we're at 502 West 58th. You can follow us at, on Instagram at Double Shovel Cider Co. Um, and then my personal is AK underscore Applejack um, on Instagram. And uh, yeah, anyone wants to follow me or write me about anything, uh, always down to chat. Cool. And for anybody listening, Catch a Can, Double Shovel is available in Catch a Can. So you can go check that out. Yeah, that was important to make sure that we we uh we got into the southeast. So yeah. that's like our our mission is to make sure that every Alaskan has the opportunity to drink our cider if they want it. So yeah, don't skip us over on your way to Seattle. Yeah, yeah, and I guess for those people that are living in the southeast that you know um, are used to the two kind of main flavors, the flagship flavors, the Hoft and the Appalachian that get sent out down there. Um, if you come to the tap room when you're in Anchorage. Um, there's a bunch of ciders we don't distribute. So we usually have, um, 10 to 12 ciders on tap and then, um, six to eight other flavors like pineapple, grapefruit, lavender, forest, bittersweet, I could go on and on, um, bunch of different sours, um, available in cans or on tap here only. Um, so it's really cool to meet the, you know, all the cider enthusiasts when they come in and, and show them what we actually make here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the Avalanche quite a bit, and Abby's a big fan of the sours, so it was it was nice. Yeah, cool. Cool. Well, thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, we'll catch you later, Jeff. All right, take care.